Nehemiah is writing personally what God had done through him for his people, and so how he is working among his people throughout this book. As you read Nehemiah, the historical context here is that this is the third and the final return to Jerusalem. The first two uh, returns you can find in the book of Ezra, where Ezra comes back with a group of people to rebuild the temple where the political identity, the religious identity is reinstituted at the temple. The state of Jerusalem is still in ruins. As you look at Nehemiah, we have to first recognize what God has done uh, by calling this man Nehemiah. So who is Nehemiah? First, the first thing that we learn about Nehemiah is that he's a man with a big heart for the people of God. As we see in chapter 1, he hears that Jerusalem is in ruins, it is in destruction, and he commits himself to pray and fast for the people, as we'll see in verse 1-4. Soon as I heard those words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the king of heaven. He hears the state of the people of Jerusalem, and he prays, and he fasts, and he mourns for his fellow kinsmen. The second thing we learn about Nehemiah is that he is close to the king. At the end of chapter 1, we see that he is a cupbearer, and he is responsible to make sure that the king is uh, not poisoned by an enemy, by a rival. Because of his position, he has the closeness of a counselor to the king. So he has the king's ear. The king knows him. The king knows what's going on in his life. And he's functioning as one of the most trusted counselors for the king. The third thing that we learn about Nehemiah is that he is a man of prayer. Chapter 1 is all about him praying for his people. But every time throughout the book when he's afraid, when he's confused, when he's not sure of what to do next, he prays. And he prays for wisdom. He prays for courage. And we see in verse 2, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And we see Nehemiah throughout the book that he prays. He prays for himself. He prays for the people. He prays for wisdom. That there's no problem too small or too big that he cannot bring before God. The fourth thing we learn about Nehemiah is that he is a man of action. Because of his commitment and prayer and his faith in God, Nehemiah acts. He acts with plans. He acts uh, with purpose, and it usually acts after he's praying, as we see. And he says, And I said to the king, It pleases the king, and your servant has found favor in your sight, and you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may re rebuild it. He is acting to pursue the restoration of Jerusalem. And the fifth thing that we learn about Nehemiah through this book is that God raised Nehemiah specifically to restore his people. We see that the king grants Nehemiah's request, and he makes a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Verse 8, And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. While the king is the one who makes the decree, God is the one raising Nehemiah to restore the city of Jerusalem. So who is Nehemiah? He is a man with a deep love for the people of God, a man of prayer and action, and whom God has raised up to restore Israel. 
throughout this book, God is going to use Nehemiah to, to accomplish the impossible task because he has done great things in him. So now that we know who Nehemiah is and now that he's been commissioned, this is where the work begins for Nehemiah. See, he spends three days in Jerusalem and uh, he quietly sneaks out in the middle of the night to go and to survey the land, to see what exactly is broken about Jerusalem, to see things for himself. And so before the work of restoration begins, he needs to know the work that is ahead of him. As we see in verse 13, everywhere that he looks, everywhere that he looks, everywhere that he sees, he sees walls ruined, he sees things broken, he sees gates destroyed, and there is so much rubble in the streets that it's difficult for him to navigate the streets with his animal. But after surveying Jerusalem, after seeing the destruction of Jerusalem, he understands how to proceed forward. I'm sure some of you are probably asking the question, why does it matter that Jerusalem is in ruins? See, then, a city without walls was a city without security. Anybody could come in the walls. Enemies, animals, criminals, they could come in and they could come out uh, as easy as they wanted to. There was, there was no security for the city. There was no economic prosperity for the city because everything, the crime was, was through the roof. There was no political influence. The city lacked a future. The city was... Was, was garbage. There was nothing redeemable about the city. As I was looking at Jerusalem and, and the state of Jerusalem, I was reminded of, of a city that we probably all know, and that's Detroit, Michigan. You see, this was once the largest city in Michigan, and it was the leading city in our nation for economy, the leading city for industry, and it had, it was, a, it was a city that led with culture. And this was all up until 50 years ago. At its height, it represented the American ingenuity and the American dream at its finest. It provided stable jobs for families. It provided a decent housing market for people. And it created ample opportunities for families to flourish. In its prime, there were over 2 million people living in Detroit and that's, that was a huge number uh, 50 years ago. Many moved there because of the economic prosperity. But due to some worldwide crises and some bad political uh, uh, policies, Detroit spiraled into ruin. It is a shadow of what it formerly was. Businesses left, and from between 1950 and 1980, 600,000 people moved away from the city of Detroit. This led to a lower taxes that the city could bring. Because of this exodus of the city, the officials couldn't maintain roads. They couldn't maintain basic services. And it led the city officials to file for bankruptcy in 2013 with $18 billion in debt. What was once the promise of the economic or the, the American future and just 50 years ago has, became, has become a shadow of its former self. You see, as 
bad as Detroit became, Jerusalem was even worse. It represented everything that was to be Jewish, to be ethnic Jewish. It represented the center of the Israeli government. It represented the king who would come and would restore and redeem Israel from their sin, from their idolatry. Jerusalem was significant to the people of Israel because it represented everything it was to be Jewish. Because God destroyed Jerusalem, the people were, were, rest, were dealing with a lack of security, a lack of significance. A city that once promised refuge to all who entered it, its gates now set in ruins. More importantly than the state of Jerusalem, it represents the state of the people's hearts. The people had lost their identity. They had lost their security. They had lost their influence all because of their own sin. God didn't abandon them. Yes, God removed them from Jerusalem. Yes, God judged them. Yes, God disciplined them. God never abandoned them. God never gave up on them. God never just washed his hands of the Jews. But here in the book of Nehemiah, he steps in through the person of Nehemiah to bring restoration to Jerusalem. More importantly, he's going to bring redemption to the people, bringing them out of their sin. So after surveying the state of the city, Nehemiah returns to meet with key leaders and to discuss the task and the work ahead of the people. He casts vision for the future by acknowledging the brokenness of the present. Look at verse 17. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. What Nehemiah doesn't do here as an outsider, he doesn't scold the people for their living conditions. He doesn't chide them because of their sins. He doesn't belittle the people because they've been living without hope. Instead, he identifies with their suffering when he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He's an outsider. But he's identifying with the problems and the suffering and the woes of the people. As we look at these two verses, it under, or uh, <clears throat> Nehemiah's purpose wasn't something that came from himself, but stirred by God in him, as we see in verse 18. And I told them at the hand, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. He's highlighting his main purpose in coming to Jerusalem. He's leaving the king's presence, and he's leaving a life of luxury, and he's identifying with the brokenness of his people. Through this restoration, he will be bringing redemption and restoration of the people of, of Jerusalem. Of course, we see that God stirred Nehemiah to pray and fast for these people, to petition the king with a plan to rebuild Jerusalem. But now Nehemiah gets a glimpse that God is working to restore the people's hearts. And because of God's activity, this is how the people respond. They say, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Here, a hopeless people are eager to work 
to pursue the work ahead of them. And we even see that the Holy Spirit is strengthening the people to do the impossible through them. So with God working alongside the people, uh, it doesn't take but two months to rebuild the walls as we see in chapter six. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul in 52 days. This is a miracle. The nowhere in, other, in, in human history has a wall been able to be rebuilt from a destroyed and a, and a disgraced people. But God is working through these people to rebuild this wall. More than this story about walls being built, Nehemiah is a story about God restoring people's hearts, but it always starts with the tangible need of broken walls. And it is God working in his tangible needs that ends or that brings about spiritual revitalization and growth. And what we learn through the book of Nehemiah is that physical needs must be met before spiritual restoration can take place. God always cares about us as people and not just the state of our souls. He cares about our physical lives. Time after time, as we read through the Gospels, uh, you see Jesus demonstrating this, where he feeds people, he heals people, he casts out demons from people, all before he teaches them the spiritual truths that their souls really need. And in meeting needs and feeding stomach comes before greater spiritual needs can be met. If we're going to preach the gospel, uh, we have to know the needs that are around us. Our hearts obviously are created to know God, to enjoy him, but many can't even see their need for Christ because they are struggling physically. They are struggling emotionally through uh, hunger, through their job situation, through their housing, through addiction, and through just the day-to-day struggles that keep our eyes from seeing our need for Christ. God cares about the physical well-being of us. As we look around Yakima, there are so many good organizations that exist here in Yakima, UGM, Love, Inc., and others, all striving to meet the physical needs in people so that they can be open and able to receive the greater need of the gospel, which is going to transform their lives. This is one of the main reasons why we pursue our Sunday of service every year is because we want to be intentional to meet the physical needs of people around us. God cares about our physical needs. We should care about the physical needs of others. We intentionally partner with organizations to meet those needs where we are finding people in our neighborhood to work alongside them, bringing the hope and the restoration to the people of Yakima. It starts by meeting people where we are. As Christians, we must have the heart to meet those struggling around us because our faith should move us to act in the lives of others. But we strive to meet these needs not because we're great and mighty, but because God has done great and mighty things through us. Primarily that he has redeemed us He has restored us, and he has brought us into a personal relationship with Jesus. Every part of the story of Nehemiah, we see that God's desire for the people is this. His desire is to restore the brokenness of our lives through Jesus. The more that I read Nehemiah, 
the more that I am quickly, that is quickly becoming one of my favorite Old Testament stories. It's a complex story of restoration and redemption among God's people. The restoration of Jerusalem is a shadow of the even greater restoration that's going to come through Jesus. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, we finally see that the temple is restored. We see that Jerusalem is restored. We see that the people of God are restored. The only thing that is missing at this point is the king. The people are waiting for the king to come. And it's, it's, the stage is set for God to totally and completely redeem his people from the mess and the brokenness of sin. Remember last week how Pastor Kevin was in, in the book of Daniel? One of the most important prophecies in the book of Daniel foretells a decree that is going to be made to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, once that decree was made to rebuild the walls, it started a timer down for when the Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem. As you read throughout the Bible, Nowhere else has God been so specific as to when he will come back. In fact, 483 years to the day that King Xerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus would be riding on a donkey through the streets of through Jerusalem a week before he would die for the sins of the world. God is using the book of Nehemiah to point to the greater redemption and restoration that will only come through Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. As we look at Nehemiah, he left his life of luxury identifying with the brokenness of his people. Jesus left the presence of God the Father, took on human flesh, to identify with the brokenness and the suffering of humanity, even taking our sins on himself and giving us his righteousness. Nehemiah is going to restore Jerusalem and lead people to revival. Jesus is going to restore the minds and the hearts of the people, completely redeeming them from the stain and the weight of sin. See, here's the beauty of the gospel. We are saved from our sin by grace through faith in Jesus' work. Once we are saved, then the work of restoration takes root in our hearts. And God is at work in us, restoring us and redeeming us from the ongoing struggles of our own sin throughout the course of our life. And he is redeeming us into even greater glory than we've ever experienced in our lives. And this work of restoration only comes by simply trusting and believing in him for all things. I have two points of simple application for you. The first one is, is to abide in Jesus. I am personally challenged by the way that Nehemiah approaches every single situation uh, throughout the book. He doesn't strive to do things out of his own power. He doesn't give up. He doesn't complain at the impossible work ahead of him. No, he demonstrates a prayerful dependence on God to move and act on his behalf. He doesn't go out 
and trying harder in his own abilities, but he simply rests and trusts who God is. As you read through the book of Nehemiah, his faith is demonstrated in how he responds to the world around him. His deep faith came as a result of him abiding in his relationship with God. Jesus tells us in John 15 that we are to abide in him. It means that we find our comfort, our security, our hope in him that can only be rested in him. So I look at my own life. I've been taking the summer to process through what does it look like for me to abide in Jesus this summer. You know what I found? It's far more simple than I often think it should be. Abiding in Jesus doesn't mean that I have to go through all of these hoops to know who God is. It just means that I simply rest and stop and enjoy and delight in him. I've been thinking through this. I have three kids, and if you've met them, they're all very different. How I relate to my oldest is very different than how I relate to my two, my two youngest. And I've been finding just enjoyment in simply who they are, just stopping and being with them, talking to them listening to them and relating to them at their age-appropriate ways. I've been finding enjoyment in, God, in who God has created them to be. In even better ways for us, as God our Father relates to us as individuals, as he cares for us, he cares about what is going on in our lives, there's nothing that we have to do where we have to impress God. There's nothing that we have to do to strive for God's love. God loves us and cares for us for the simple fact that we are his children. And abiding with God can look many different ways. What I've found in my life, uh, abiding just simply means to come and enjoy his presence. This is one way that I've been growing this summer is is taking time to come to speak to him through prayer. I found it has been easy to spend at least 20 minutes just in focused prayer, breaking my prayer up into five-minute segments, praying as a way for us to come into God's presence and to enjoy him, to abide in him, and to delight in him. I'm sure many of you have heard the, the prayer method, Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. I just want to encourage you just to take, break those into five minutes. Take five minutes to adore God for who he is based on what scripture tells us who he is. Take five minutes to confess our sins, to confess our selfishness, to, conf to confess just all of these things. We don't confess because God is hiding these things or is unaware of these things. We confess these things to be open and honest with him about who we are. Taking five minutes to have supplications or bringing prayers for ourselves and for others, and then taking five minutes just to thank God for who he is. I've found that the more that I've been doing this, I actually spend longer than 20 minutes, but it's something that is part of my day that I long for. I crave, I desire to be in God's presence. And being intentional to pray means that we are being intentional to be in God's presence where God wants us to experience the grace that only comes from knowing him. In the same way that God loves us as sons and daughters, by grace through faith, 
It takes a lifetime to simply come to him every day and resting and dwelling in his love for us. One of the things we say here at Restoration Church is that we are a gospel people as we are reminding ourselves over and over and over again what Christ has done for us on the cross. That everything that we say and do is fueled not by our own work, but by Jesus' work on our behalf. And we come to enjoy that work by abiding in him. The second point of application I have for you is that trust that God is at work in your life. See, Nehemiah makes this profound statement at the end of chapter 2. He says, the God of heaven will make the people prosper. His servants will rise up and build these walls. When did he make that statement? He made that statement before the work had even began. He understood and knew that because God had been present in Nehemiah's life in the past, redeeming him, bringing him to the place where he is now, he is going to work in the present. Nehemiah could not have told you that the work would have taken 52 days. He doesn't make that promise. He makes the promise that God is going to work. He is confident on what God is going to do because he has worked in the past. I know in my own life, when I, was, I constantly fight the lies that I'm not good enough, the lies that I'm not smart enough, the lies that I'm not skilled enough, and that I can't accomplish, I can't be the best parent, I can't be the best husband, I can't be the best friend. Not to mention all of the unknown stressors that are going to come up in my life. Sometimes I feel like I'm going to fail even before I start. Yet because God has worked in my life in the past, I have confidence that he is working in the present, even in the feelings of isolation, even in the feelings of disheartening, he is working to restore my heart. And I know and I'm confident that he's doing the same for you. One of the most comforting aspects of my faith is this, that God saw me condemned to die and he brought me back to life through his son, Jesus. Because of my, son, my status as a son of God, he is presently working in my life. Since God began the work of redeeming us from sin through his son Jesus, he's going to see us completed in Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us the same thing in Philippians 1 when he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has not given up on you. God has not abandoned you. God has not neglected you. God is at work in your lives. God is especially skilled at taking the brokenness of our lives, taking the shame and the frustration and all of the things that work itself in our lives. He takes those things, he takes the mess of our lives and he makes it beautiful. When we place our faith in Jesus, he's going to restore us to the image of Christ. It's not going to be today, but it will be over the course of our lifetime where he is working in us, he is working through us, and he's going to accomplish greater things through us than we can ever imagine. The more that we trust and depend on him to complete the work in us, do you know what that means? It means 
that God is going to be with you. God is never going to forsake you. He's never going to give you up. He's going to be with you because Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death. God desires to bring restoration to all of our lives, to our marriages, to our families, to our workplaces, to our city. He desires to bring people out of the darkness of sinfulness. But restoration only comes as we pursue him together and resting and abiding in his completed work.